This Morning with Stacey Bratzel and Daryl McIntyre on 630 Chat, presented by Abe's Door Service, with 24-7 emergency service where you speak to an actual person. Visit abesdoor.ca. Good morning, everyone. It is uh, 6.06, and affordability, uh, uh, mm. a big topic on so many people's minds and, and how they're going to get through Christmas and, and get all of the stuff their kids need and all the food that they need. And, um, and some, you know what, Christmas may, may be really far off for other, pe- for other people who mm. just want to make sure they pay their rent and, and, and put some food on the table for, for their kids. Yeah, there are different levels of, uh, of, of uncertainty as we head into Christmas, especially with uh, the prices that they are. Uh, so take uncertainty, now switch over to insecurity and food insecurity. What exactly is that? There's a new report uh, that is out. It's the Edmonton Community Foundation releasing its report on f- food security uh, today. What exactly does that mean? Does that mean that people are literally starving? Does it mean they just can't get good quality food? What does it mean for the larger population, uh, we want to check in with Neka Otobulu, who is uh, with the Edmonton Community Foundation, joining us uh, today. He's the Director of Strategic Initiatives, co-chair of this Vital Signs Report, uh, joining us. Uh, Neka, thanks so much for your time. How are you? Good morning, Daryl. I'm good. Good. So what exactly, if we could just start from the beginning, what is food insecurity? Um, thanks, Stacey. Um, food insecurity is when a household... Um, has, if I would call it inadequate or insecure access to food due to financial constraints. So access, does does quality of food and and nutrition, that kind of thing, enter into uh, food insecurity as well? Definitely. Um, Where we say, and and that, that part is when we look at the food sovereignty. So um, food sovereignty, the right of people to healthy and culturally appropriate food um, produced through sustainable methods. It actually transformed or transformed the idea of food as a commodity to food as a public good. So, Neka, what did you find in this report? I know there's lots of numbers, and so <laughs> let's just narrow it down, I guess, to, to food insecurity and, and what you found was the most shocking um, stat. Um, we, we found really interesting and concerning data. Um, our first report on food security was in 2013, and um, we decided to do a retrospective um, research this year, um, which was our 10th year anniversary of running this vital science project. And we just wanted to see the needle moved in any way. And um, some of the interesting data that we found out was that um, food insecurity affects us in in several ways. And it could affect us depending on the demographics um, we find ourselves in, um, in the city. For instance, um, we've got data that shows that um, indigenous households are three more times likely to face um, food or experience food insecurity um, as compared to white households and um, black households are also almost in the same spectrum where we have um, about 2.8% or 2.8 times more likely to live with food insecurity as compared to white households. Um, looking at social economic backgrounds, we see that um, lone parents um, are also more likely to 
experience severe food insecurity as well. Uh, to me, it's it's also just the the increase because there are different levels of food insecurity. Some people can be mildly have some food insecurity, and then you get into those severe levels too. So if if you look at just over ten years ago, twelve years ago, uh, in a survey, it was what two point. Uh, 2.5%, now 6.3% of the respondents said that they have mm-hmm. severe food insecurity. Yeah. What is that telling you, apart from the obvious, but uh, in, in, in the larger picture? So it means that um, more families um, are going days without food. So that's the severe uh. part. Um, it describes when a household misses meal or reduce food intake and may even go days without food. And the numbers are increasing. In 2011, we had 2.5% um, um, experience um, severe food insecurity, but right now we are at 6.3%. So it's on the rise. And this data is as of 2022. Um, what we see is that it's gonna be more this year in 2023. What do you get? What do you do with this? So, how how do what do you use this report for, and what what action can you take? Um, what we do is that we use this report to um, keep community informed. Um, so we talk about um, policy uh, makers, um, charities that serve um, families that are in frontline work of food security in the city. Um, we talk about our government officials, the policymakers, the politicians. We we actually hope that they use this particular report um, to work towards the ultimate systemic change that we need. That it's necessary to reimagine the food system, not just in our city but also our province as well. Because from this report, what we see is that um, no one innovative solution or approach is suitable. We need we need a range of policy changes, um, solutions, and grassroots efforts to shift to shift the problem to the right direction of change. Um, and it's not just one person's responsibility; it's it's everyone. Um, all hands has to be on deck to get this resolved, and as soon as possible as well. Uh, I did see in the report that uh, it was found that income supports weren't just an, weren't enough for for people to to get out of insecurity and severe insecurity. Yes, but we did notice that um, food security is also rooted in income security. So you're right, Stacey. Um, and during the pandemic, when um, we had interventions such as the CERB, um, people were getting a bit more relief in that direction, but now we don't have some of those um, um, interventions that were there then. Um, and then we noticed that um, single adults were left behind um, by some of the um, interventions that were and income um, supports that were launched at that time and removed now. So yes, we could tie um, food security closely that we could say food security is closely related in income security and so issues like um, underemployment unemployment also adds to to the complex issue 
Uh, there's obviously going to be a number of causes, and it's different for each family, different for each individual. But what, uh, based on what you have seen in this report, what do you think the greatest cause of food insecurity is? Is it the inflation? Is it, uh, inflation. Is it income support? Rising, is, is rising food costs. Absolutely. Rising yeah. food costs, yes. Um, over the course of 2022 alone, food costs rose by 10.8%. And as we speak, it's expected to rise an additional 5 to 7% in 2023. So what are people doing to get food on the table? What sacrifices are there are they making? People are people are budgeting differently. So they are for example when you have um a low income family of four having to spend 41% on of their income, of their monthly income on food and 54% on on accommodation on rent. Um you see where a mere 5% is left for them for other costs, right, other expenses. So they would have to forego food to pay maybe light bill, waste bill. Um, we're seeing where the food bank uses in, on, on, on a record high. Um, in 2013, we had um, about 12,000 people, you know, um, visit the food bank. So this, in 2022, was on record high, about 30,000 um, visits. And it could be seen also in the quantity of food as well. There has been a, almost 300% increase in, in the quantity of food that is being consumed or distributed through the food bank. So now you're going to take this report and uh, put it in front of politicians and say, this is what's going on. This is the state yeah. of our city right now. Is, yeah. is that the plan? Yes, we're, we're distributing it to everyone, um, not just politicians. We're distributing it to community groups. We're, we're, dis- we're distributing it to as many people that need to see this as, as possible because um, it's not one group of people's responsibility, but everyone's responsibility, if you understand mm-hmm. how, what I mean, Stacey. Yep. Absolutely, it's uh, it's uh, it takes a village to, to feed bet. a village, as it turns out. Uh, Neka Otobolo, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Stacey. Thank you, Daryl. As you well, um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Michelle, you too. Uh, she's the director of strategic initiatives and co-chair of this vital signs report out of the Edmonton Community Foundation. And you can actually see the report at ecfoundation.org. A lot of interesting numbers about demographics, about um, food programming in schools, uh, food security on farms, food sustainability, mm-hmm. waste. Uh, so we we really talked about insecurity. And, and food insecurity uh, amongst Edmontonians, but there's a lot of numbers there that, uh, and very well done. It's really easy to read, so it's something that uh, that people should take a look at. Well, comprehensive and easy to access; those are two things that aren't always hand in hand. So, yeah, if you are interested, once again, ECF. Uh, ecfoundation.org and look for Vital Signs Report. All right, let's take a quick break and come back with more. Uh, What do you think about this? Are you suffering any food insecurity? I know that there are different levels in this report. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's different levels among those of you who are listening. Love to hear from you. 780-496-0063. Door 
Car Service, where service is their specialty. Proud sponsor of This Morning with Stacey Bratzel and Daryl McIntyre on 630 Chad. It is just about 6.21 this morning. Uh, Stacey and I were talking just in the commercial break about uncertainty. So with food insecurity and that conversation that we had in the last segment, uh, there's certainly an awful lot of uncertainty for a lot of families. There's uncertainty over the, the grand economic scheme, about housing, about rental prices, about mortgage prices, about interest rates. There is also uncertainty about Healthcare, And I said, I think that's a conversation that has gone on a lot. I don't know that it's about the nuts and bolts of an announcement from the province. About yesterday. who's running it and who's on the board. And, and how it's going to yeah. work and all the rest of that stuff. I think it's about the general unease. You look at the emergency wait times, which continue to be really high. You look about access to family doctors, still really difficult for an awful lot of people. Yeah. That unease and that uncertainty, I think, is really hard on an awful lot of people. Yeah, so a big announcement yesterday that uh, the UCP government going to pretty much dismantle Alberta Health Services mm-hmm. and um, sort of piecemeal it into certain different uh, specialties, if you will. Uh, there is going to be a process where they they meet with people on the front lines. And I have to admit that structure and decision-making decisions um, and and who does that and different boards and what does that look like, it, it, I think it escapes a lot of people unless the, you are in the healthcare system. I'm not, what does this look like? I don't, I don't know. Is there a precedent somewhere else that we can look at? What does this mean for me being able to go to the emergency room and and get in within eleven hours? And I don't think uh, I don't think that's clear at this particular point. Here's uh, a little bit about what Premier Daniel Smith said about the change in healthcare delivery. We're creating an integrated provincial healthcare delivery system that concentrates on four priority areas: primary care, acute care, continuing care, and mental health and addiction. We believe that by creating specialized organizations within one provincial system. We will enable each organization to look after one area of healthcare only. Okay, perhaps on the face of it, that sounds that sounds great. Uh, you hear from some health policy experts like Lorian Hardcastle, and she says, "Well, okay, it might sound like an idea, but it's really not clear how it's supposed to improve." The system. Clearly, our system is struggling right now, and it isn't clear to me that this kind of massive systemic change that will throw instability into the system should be preferred over more pointed changes that target the specific issues within the system. And that's my issue, I think, at this point, is if you don't know exactly how it's going to work, and it's going to take a couple of years to do the transition, how much gets gets lost in the shuffle and doesn't get improved in the meantime. Yeah, and, and we don't know yet. And these four entities, suspect. do they talk to each other? How How is that going to be integrated? A lot of questions. And I hope that they don't move too quickly on this, but we want change right now. We want we want it to, to, to it. be different. Fix it now. You know, we heard uh, yesterday that the Grey Nuns and the Misericordia, they couldn't accept one more patient. They were yeah, at 150% were capacity. Looking at the emergency wait times now, not too bad unless you're going to the Misericordia, which is a almost eight hours wait. Um, <laughs> but uh, most of them relatively reasonable around the three to four hour. Well, <laughs> reasonable. I know three to four reasonable. hour mark. And that's also at 625 in the morning. What was it like last night? Didn't say, I didn't uh, check the, the wait times in the rush hour. Yeah, Grey Nuns, were. 30 minutes, apparently. Uh, what do you think? You can dive in on the text line, 780-496-0063. Do you have hope for change, or are you worried about how long it's going to have to take?